welcome to the Am I Hunting Podcast. Hunt season is coming up very quickly. So on this episode, I'm going to be covering things that you should be looking at getting done over the next few weeks to get yourself ready for deer season. Alright, hello and welcome to the My Hunting Podcast. Thank you for listening. And if you're on a platform where you get to watch, thanks for watching. So yeah, so this episode, we are going to talk about uh, some things that should be getting done over the next several weeks. Uh, we're looking at this, this is the last week of August. Some of the hunting seasons have already started to open up, especially how west, here in the Midwest, within the next few weeks, it's going to be deer season in several different states. And here in Michigan, we're going to be opening up October 1st. So we only have a few weeks left to go uh, before we really need to have everything ready to go and head out to the woods. So, but before we get into the episode, I do want to touch base on a couple of events that are coming up here in Michigan that um, I just want to highlight uh, for you, the listener. So the first one is the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation's the Pigeon River Chapter. They're doing their annual banquet. Now that's going to be held in Gaylord, Michigan. The date on that is going to be September 24th. And if you've never done a banquet of this sort, you know, this year up in Traverse City, I went to the annual banquet there for that chapter and it was an absolute blast. So if you've never had a chance to experience something like that, or if you're interested in supporting the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation that does do a lot of work, especially here in Michigan as well, um, with our population and across the country, really. If you want to show your support and attend a really fun event, check that one out. So head on over to their webpage, pull up their events tab, and look it up for yourself. The next one is another one that's here in Michigan is the Woods and Water Outdoor Weekend. Basically, it's going to be a big outdoor event. They're going to have lots of vendors. They have different events. They have a chili cook-off. Uh, they have displays of locked antler. Uh, lots of different displays. Lots of people to talk to. I'm going to try to make it down to that one. And I hope to see you there. So that's it for the events. Now let's head on over to the conservation news desk. All right, so this first article comes from Yahoo News from August 22nd. Scientists say they can bring back extinct species back, but should they? So essentially what we got going on here, a group of scientists last week announced a plan to resurrect the Tasmanian tiger. A coyote-like marsupial has been extinct for nearly a century using state-of-the-art gene editing technology. So the goal of the research is to eventually reintroduce the creature back in the Australian wilderness where they roamed as an apex predator. Scientists plan to displace genetic material from old Tasmanian tigers with the DNA of its closest, closest living relative, mouse-sized marsupial called a Dunant, to create a, a new animal nearly identical to a long-dead ancestor. So this project is in collaboration between Australian researchers and US-based company called Colossal Bioscience. Last year, they revealed a bold plan to bring back the woolly mammoth. But unfortunately, in comparison to the Tasmanian tiger, mammoth has been extinct for 4,000 years, meaning that there's very less genetic material to work with, people begin. So with this result, it won't be exactly mammoth, but it'll be a cold resistant elephant essentially. But there is a bit of a debate 
on whether or not these scientists should be bringing back extinct animals. So advocates say that the potential outcome could benefit humans. Scientists bringing back mammoths, for example, say that wild herds of these enormous animals may help combat climate change by slowing erosion of permafrost. Others say ambitious projects like the extinction are likely to unlock breakthroughs in genetic science that can be used to help endangered species. So there is some truth behind that. Uh, at least this technology could help protect or help you know, mitigate a continued extinction of current animals right now. It doesn't go without criticism. But critics say the, the attention, effort, and perhaps the most important money put into de-extinction efforts would be most effective use preserving the one million current existing species that face extinction. So basically one of the argument is they're using a lot of time and resources on kind of a dream where they could be putting it directly into animals that need it right now. So with this, you know, certainly some mixed feelings um, on the topic. So, you know, one thing that really comes to mind is, is that famous quote from Jurassic Park that the scientists were so worried about whether or not they could bring dinosaurs back, but whether or not if they should. This kind of reminds me of that, just a little bit. You know, especially in regards to the mammoth. They're bringing back an animal that the environment and the climate and the world itself is far different from when mammoths, you know, were on the landscape, essentially. So bringing back something like the woolly mammoth, and especially the idea of trying to release them back into the wild, you know, there seems to be a lot of questions that would have to be answered before they should even consider putting a hybrid animal like that back on the landscape. They really don't know what's going to happen once they do. In regards to the Tasmanian tiger, that one's very interesting. Again, the environment may not have changed, you know, as much over the last century that it maybe it could be a viable way to bring the animal back. But again, mixing DNA from different animals, you could get some outcomes that you weren't expecting, especially once you release it back in the wild again. You could get some really weird hybrids, you know, hybrids going on. They could, you know, have some genetic tendency to behave a certain way that's different than what the original Tasmanian tiger used to. Again, a lot of questions need to be answered uh, before, especially I would see that they should be releasing anything back into the wild. All right, so that's that one. The next one here is back to my home state of Michigan. Wolf population doubles. More pups, new packs in Michigan's remote Isle Royal. So this is from M Live from August 25th. So just a few years ago, researchers headed up an animal winter study of Isle Royals, wolf and moose populations, where sometimes hard pressed to glimpse at least two wolves remaining in a snow covered island. Fast forward to this winter, the research team flies were playing estimating 28 wolves are now living in the Royal, double the number since last counted in 2020. Evidence shows while the growing wolf population is healthy and established itself into two packs, the moose population has declined about 28%, dropping to about 1,300 wolves killed. Wolves, wolf kills accounted for about 9% of the moose deaths, the highest wolf predation rate documented in Iroil since 2011. So if you're not familiar with the Iroil, it's a island in Lake Superior that has a historical moose and wolf population. Now over the past few years, or quite a while I guess just to say, 
the wolf population has decreased, and they've been putting effort into reestablishing the wolf population by a wide number of means that the article will get in here. At least five litters of wolf pups are born in Isle Royale since the wolf re relocation project began in 2018. Basically, they're bringing wolves from UP in Michigan, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Canada. So one litter was born in 2019, two litters born in 2020, and two more born in 2021. Research indicates that another two litters could be born in 2022, one, each, one to each of the existing packs. The wolves appear to be organized in two main packs, one on the eastern end of the island with at least 13 wolves and another pack on the western end of 13 wolves as well. And there's a pack of two who don't appear be a part of a pack. So the isles, the island's eastern pack appears to be anchored by a sibling wolf pair. Now this is part of the issue that they ran into is that as the wolf population decreased, they started noticing more and more inbreeding, which was leading to issues with disease and any other, and all the other negative side effects of too much inbreeding within the animal population. So, and the issue with the, the decreased wolf population is that now that the, now the moose population has skyrocketed and they're actually running into an issue of disease and potentially starvation and an overbrowse and basically a deterioration of the habitat because of the overbrowse pressure from the moose. So over the past year, they found unusually high number of moose that appear to have died from malnutrition. The population be, appears to be suffering from a food shortage, especially in the winter when those moose don't have enough good options to eat. Wolves lack the lack of food are not only the things that drive in wolves and lack of food are not the only things driving the moose numbers, dropping the moose numbers. A blood sucking winter tick has become a severe problem for many island moose. Such moose can carry more than 20,000 ticks. The blood loss from the ticks can make the moose anemic, impacting their ability to keep their winter coat intact and raise calves. Another issue is that fewer moose calves have been spotted during this year's survey. Only 4% of the moose counted were calves, the lowest calf count since 2007. So again, another indication that these moose are eating themselves out of house and home, not having enough food to be able to sustain or maintain population by producing viable calves. So years ago, and so they go into the, some of the struggles that they had with reestablishing the moose or the wolf population. So years ago, there were up to 50 wolves in different packs of Isle Royal, but a combination of inbreeding, accidents, disease caused their numbers to dwindle to just two island-born wolves. At the same time, the island's moose population quickly expanded, unchecked by predators. As the moose ate their way across the island, there was a real concern that overbrowsing by the huge animals could leave the wilderness in poor shape. While the Isle, while Isle Royale is among the least visited national parks, it draws hiking enthusiasts and shipwreck drivers. In 2018, the Park Service had its wolf relocation plan ready to start the goal is to create a strong, healthy wolf pack, trapping wolves from various parts of the Great Lakes, and bring them to Isle Royal. No hope was with these arrivals, the genetic problem that doomed the that doomed the island's past wolves would not be replaced. So basically, adding new wolves, increasing the genetic diversity, hopefully by 
getting rid of some of that inbreeding. But a lot of the things that they were doing early on were not working. So some of some of the there have been lots of bumps along the way. The island's oldest wolf was found dead from a wolf attack a year later, my new predators began to arrive. His mate hasn't been seen. Some of the new 19 wolves died of infection or disease. Others were attacked and killed by other wolves. And one of my favorite stories is one left on the ice bridge and headed back to the mainland. So that was one female that they had uh, dropped off there. And that first winter, she's like, nope, I'm out. I'm out of here. But it now looks like there is, with all their efforts, despite their... Uh, hiccups they are starting to see a growing wolf population hopefully that success continues and they can help balance out the moose population and maintain a healthy ecosystem all right so that's it for the news let's get into the topic at hand so one of the first things that i'm going to talk about is something that really should have been uh, something that you've been doing for at least weeks now, if not months, is that's practicing with your archery equipment. I don't know if I've ever really talked about this before, but one of the best things to do to make sure that you're ready when you come into archery season is make sure you're proficient and comfortable and confident with your with your archery equipment and shooting your bow. So one of the main things I do is I make sure that whatever distance I plan on hopefully shooting uh, at a at deer for the year so this year I've picked that I want to shoot within or at 30 yards and really I don't want to really shoot any further than that now certainly if a deer comes in at past 30 yards well you know as long as they're within really 40 yards I'm willing to take a shot at them but really most of my setups are going to be hopefully to get the deer within 30 yards of me So that's just one one goal of mine, and that's what I use as a benchmark for my archery practice. So one of the things I do is whatever distance I've selected for the year that I'm going to be shooting, my goal is to be confident and proficient at shooting twice that distance at target. So this year, with me picking 30 as my go-to range in practice, I want to be comfortable shooting at 60 yards so what i typically do to get ready for that so whatever distance that i've whatever time that i've set aside to uh, for my practice now typically i like to give myself several months but if i had to i could get this done in several weeks so ultimately what i do is i start my practice out at 20 yards now let's just take in consideration of that I'm going to have several months to complete this. So the first month, I'm going to practice at 20 yards. No more, no less, 20 yards. Just keep shooting at 20 yards, 20 yards, 20 yards. The main goal of that one is really to shake off the rust and start getting some reps in. So I may start out and only be able to really shoot about 10 arrows before I start to feel a little bit, bit of fatigue, start feeling some strain in my shoulders, start losing some of my steadiness as that muscle fatigue kicks in. My goal is to make it through that that month and start really getting dialed in, building up my mu- muscles again to shoot my bow. After that, after that first month, then I move out to 30 yards. Now, this point is really starting to expand that distance and start narrowing those groups in 
So as you start out at 30 yards, I might have a wider group. You know, maybe it's four or five inches, maybe six inches. Well, may not be as consistent or be able to be as steady and zero in and really get a nice grouping in place. By the end of that month, I should have a nice grouping, maybe about two or three inches consistently. Ideally, it can be smaller than that, down to about an inch or maybe two inch grouping at that distance. After that, move back to 40. Again, this is going to be pushing a little bit more of that grouping. So as I move out to 40, that grouping size will probably open up again. And as I continue to shoot throughout the month, that grouping will get smaller and smaller and smaller. And at this point too, I'm really starting to focus on the number of reps. So again, as you progress throughout this process, you should be able to make it through more volleys of arrows before you start feeling fatigue. At this point, I'm looking at doing at least 30 arrows before I really start feeling tired. Now, I've shot a lot of, at this point, you should have shot a lot of arrows so far. Some of that muscle memory, some of those muscles are coming back. You should notice that you're able to stay on target, not have as much bow sway, or not have as much issue holding that pin on target. Because now your body's starting to build up that muscle memory again, like I said and also building up those muscles, getting used to the shooting that bow again. Then next, you move out to 50 yards. Same thing. At this point, those groups are gonna really start to open up. You're gonna start noticing some of those tendencies that at the shorter distances aren't gonna make much of an effect. So if you have any issues with your grip, if you are struggling with you know, maintain the, the consistent uh, anchor. Or if you have a hard time, especially at this distance, if you're shooting a single pin sight, you're gonna notice that that point of aim changes a little bit because that sight pin is moving down in comparison to where it was maybe if you're at your 20 yard mark. So you may notice that you might have to hold your face just a little bit different, usually drawing, opening the jaw a little bit lengthen that jawline a little bit where your anchor point might be. So you're gonna notice some inconsistencies that are gonna probably start to develop there. Again, the main thing is to focus on consistent chop like you did at 20, 30, and 40 yards. And at this point, you should be very comfortable to shooting you know, anywhere between 30 to 50 arrows and not really feeling all that fatigued. Again, same thing. As the month progresses, you should notice those group sizes getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And then the next month, that's when I'm pushing at whatever my set distance is, doubling my shot or my distance I want to shoot at an animal. So again, this year it's 60 yards. So at 60, that's really when I start noticing that um, any any flaws in my shot shot routine is going to be amplified, especially if I start to get any type of fatigue going on after shooting several arrows. So this is really the key point where you're going to notice that probably at this distance, you're really going to start having some really big grouping. You're going to have some flyers where if you didn't execute properly, you're going to notice that that arrow is going to be way off, off, off of your point of aim. Again, same thing. Stick with it. As you continue to shoot at that longer distance, you're going to hone in that skill of being able to hold that pin, make sure you're not making those errors. And you will notice, again, that, that shot grouping is going to shrink down 
Now, at this point, you may not get a very tight group. You know, even me at 60 yards so far, I'm looking at usually about somewhere between the three or even up to a four uh, inch, you know, shot group at, at 60 yards. You know, some days I'll do really good and have it down almost like a two inch or almost look right in, you know, right in the bullseye. Other times it may be a little wider. Kind of depends on some of those human elements. Uh, if you had a long day or you're having a hard time focusing or something like that, you're going to notice those groups be a little bit more. But you want to see a continuous, you know, consistency of getting smaller and smaller as you progress. So now that, now that I've hit my benchmark of where I want to be basically for max distance, the next thing I want to focus on, especially for this next month coming up to the season, is start imitating uh, not your, your straightforward shots. So for most of my practice throughout the summer, I'm basically standing you know, perpendicular to my target and shooting in relatively decent conditions. So now at this point, start practicing different shots. So if you hunt out of a blind, you know, practice some sitting shots. If you, if you do any type of ground hunting, do different stances, you know, start on your knees, rise up to the target. Start working on doing different angles, different, you know, shoot from above your target, shoot level with your target. Depending on where you're at, if you know you're going to be hunting in some terrain, maybe even set up your target above you so you're shooting uphill. Start learning those tendencies of how your bow reacts or where your arrow is going to land in those situations. And then the next thing I really do too is I start doing where basically I set, you know, my pin at 20 yards and I take, you know, three or four steps back. And then without adjusting my pin, guesstimate what my yardage is and basically adjust for the drop uh, just by you know moving up my pin on the target. You can do the same thing. Set your pin at 30, move into 25. See how that arrow reacts being set for a certain distance and how you need to adjust. So that's one thing I'll do a lot of times too, is test out the drop of my arrow. So I'll set my pin to 20, move back to 25, shoot as if I'm putting the 20 yard pin right on the bullseye. See how far that arrow lands below that, aim, that point of aim. So you're looking at the difference between your point of impact and point of aim. And then you might even move all the way up to 30 yards. See how much of a difference that makes. Now, depending on the speed of your bow, you might notice a significant difference where you know that, hey, if it's more than five yards past what my pin is, I shouldn't take that shot or I need to make some adjustments. The same thing. You could do the same thing going from like a 40 yard pin and moving up to 35. See how that, see where that arrow lands. That way you know how much give you have before you need to really focus on either adjusting your point of aim or adjusting your sight if you have a single pin sight like that. Same thing goes too if you're shooting multiple pin. You know, look at your, you know, your spacing between your pins and start guesstimating what that pin gap needs to be and, you know, guesstimating where your point of aim needs to be if you're in between pins as well. It's very good practice because it's going to be very, you know, not very often that you're going to get animal exactly on what your pin's set at. Or they may not hold still once you've got that pin set. You know, they may take a few steps changing that yardage from when you had once you're at full draw. Now, another thing I like to really do is 
what I call, you know, sometimes I might change it up and do uh, the one and done or the moment of truth. So basically what this is, is I usually like to set it up for my 60 yards. So basically it's the very first shot I'll take. Now, the moment of truth is basically you are, it's your first shot and you gotta make a good shot on target. So that's, you're not warmed up or anything like that. Go to your max distance that you feel comfortable shooting and see if you can put the arrow right where it needs to be. Now there's other things you can do about you know, making that challenge a little bit more or a little more realistic. So you can add some pressure to yourself. So what I'll do a couple, couple of different things, depending on really the time I have. So if I know I'm short on time and I, I really, I'm not feeling like I really want to practice all that much, I might put, you know, moment of truth on where I have to put an arrow in, you know, on target right where I'm aiming the very first shot. If I don't, then I force myself to have to keep shooting at that distance until I get it right. So it adds just a little bit of pressure on you. Now the other one that I think works a little bit better is where, again, you start out cold, you gotta make that moment of true shot. If you get it, then you get to keep shooting and then you can move into whatever distance you wanna practice at. You can do whatever you want, number of arrows that you wanna do. If you miss or if it's not a good shot, then you have to put your bow down and do something else for the remainder of the day or afternoon or whatever. So if you designate a time that you want to start practicing, you got to make sure that you get that first arrow in. Otherwise, you got to punish yourself and not be able to practice like you wanted. And another thing I do, a couple different things as well, is I might go for like a run and then come back and immediately pick up the boat and try making a shot so if you're still winded so i do one of two things really first i will do a you know basically if you do sprints so you really get that heart rate up really get sucking wind and then try to you know make that shot while your heart rate's up you're out of breath you got to settle in and get that shot done another thing i've done before too is basically go for a long run really fatigue yourself get those muscles super tired get get yourself worn down then immediately again pick up that bow try to make that shot when you're really tired you're super fatigued and then of course as we get closer start taking some shots you know get yourself up early in the morning or go out later later in the evening and do those low light shots again it's just going to be a little bit different compared to normal shooting in broad daylight or when you get good light in, in general and at this point too you shouldn't be afraid to go out and practice outside with a good breeze that's another good practice as well get out there when you got a stiff breeze or a cross breeze try making some shots especially when you start pushing the the outer limits of your comfortable you know shooting distance especially if you're looking at a distance that you would be comfortable shooting with an animal if you get a high breeze then you can know kind of an idea of hey if the wind's blowing this much maybe i shouldn't take a shot you know at 40 yards or 35 yards maybe i need to make sure i'm a little bit closer on a on a very windy day so those are just some things to really consider about if you're doing archery this year you know basically that's my rundown of how i prepare for the season i've done this for a number of years now doing this type of routine and i really think it's made me a much better archer you know even at this point now I'm kind of chomping at the bit for archery season. I really feel like I'm ready uh, 
to potentially sling an arrow at an animal. All right, so the next thing is you really make sure that you have ready to go by this time to get yourself ready for hunt season is if you do any type of food plotting. So if you got a private piece of ground that you do food plots on, you should have all your seed already in the ground and planted, hopefully by germ be germinating by now. So and you should be taking a look at making sure that you didn't have basically a food plot failure. So you should have everything planted by now and at least made one trip out to make sure that everything germinated properly. If you do run into where you've had um, any, you know, bare spots or if your food plot is a complete failure, now is a good time to address that. So in my instance, I had a significant amount of um, plant material that I was broadcasting into. You know, and again, as much as I try to map out, make sure I have good coverage, there are times where I'm a little off track, overseed some areas and underseed others. So just this past week, just before rain, I took some additional seed out and went through, kind of walked the food plot and found any spots that looked a little thin or even completely bare, broadcasted some additional seed out to, to hopefully within the next few weeks, fill that spot in, get some additional growth. For whatever reason, if you had a complete failure, maybe you you got bad germination, you planted and didn't get the rain that they were calling for and everything got burned out. You know, whatever the reason, now's a good time to come up with a fail safe. Now, like, I've probably talked about before, you know, one of my favorites to salvage a food plot is using rye. So you get some cereal rye or winter rye going, that can save you or get something green growing. And, and as I covered even last, last episode, it's one of those things that it grows pretty much anywhere. So even if you do have bad soils, you know, it's something that will grow in there, give those deer something to eat throughout the course of the fall and winter. Of course, you can always mix in some other plants in there as well, but I would probably suggest sticking with those cereal grains, rye or wheat. You know, oats you could do, but again, unfortunately, those oats, once they once we start getting some hard frost and freezing, those oats are going to die out. So you might have them for a short period of time, but they're not going to last throughout the course of the season. So something more like rye, not going to have the draw that the oats are going to, but they will sustain throughout the winter months. I've... You know, hunted in areas where we've planted rye before and even in the late season you'll see spots where deer have been digging digging through the snow to get down to that green rye grass down below and then next is for anyone that does public land hunting or state land hunting or federal land hunting this is another great time to really make sure that you're getting your scouting done so myself i did a couple of different scouting trips on a couple of different areas that i hunted a bit last year not one I went out earlier this summer and an area that I've noticed a lot of rubs and even a couple of scrapes in a bit of a transition area. I ended up hanging a camera in front of where an old scrape was, probably basically refreshing up the scrape, put some conquest scent in there, freshen up the scrape a bit, and just did a card pull and sure enough, there are deer all over the area. Does, fawns, young bucks, mature bucks. And they're hitting it quite often in the morning time, but I've got pictures of deer basically all day long in that area. So again, this was the first year I really put cameras out on, on public land. You know, I had a history of not really wanting to, knowing that it, there's always that risk of something getting messed up. 
and a little bit of me kind of like the surprise of not knowing what was in the area just going off what the sign said and hunting that way this year i wanted to step my game up a little bit i wanted to have a better idea of what was in the area you know despite seeing deer sign i wanted to know what was in the area and when they were coming through so i wanted to be a little more efficient when it came to the spots i hunted and kind of increase my chances of success that way so the next spot that i really focused on scouting just this past week is an area that i had a lot of encounters with a buck last year so it was one spot that i had kind of pinned as a spot i wanted to check out and hunt during the, during the course of the early season, I was hunting along a marsh, wasn't getting any good success there. So I moved over to this other spot and the very first sit, I had an encounter with a really good buck. So he came through out of a clear cut, basically heading into the cover, got him into about 30 yards or so, but he ended up, of course, stepped behind a tree. So I came back a few days later, closer to where I saw him last time. And sure enough, he came from the opposite direction closer to where I sat the first time. Then he ended up kind of angling his way up to where um, through this clear cut, there was a bit of a area where some of the trees have grown in. So the third time I hunted him, I moved closer up into where that, that funnel is, where those trees are throughout that clear cut, hoping that maybe he was gonna get funneled in that way. Sure enough, partway through the morning, some does were coming from the opposite direction. They take off running back, back the way they came. And sure enough, here comes the buck. Again, unfortunately, he just was out of range. Instead of cutting through the trail where he had previously gone through, he had stayed on the outside of these trees and never presented a good shot. Tried going back after him again after the rifle season, after coming back from my trip in South Dakota, but I just lost him. And it was one area that I never really figured out exactly what that buck was doing. I knew he was in the area, but I couldn't pinpoint exactly what, what was going on. So just this past week, went back out there, scouted basically all around this clear cut, tried to figure out the points of entry. And I also went into the woods that the buck went into the first time and came out the second time. Now just off in the woods, probably about 15, 20 yards or so, there's a creek that runs through. So basically what I focus on really is cutting through, walking along that creek, and seeing where the main uh, crossings were. So I pinpointed where a couple of the crossings were, and then I proceeded to go further into the woods to see if maybe I can find out main trailies walking along, or maybe a bedding area, or anywhere there was a significant amount of sign. Now at some point, I did end up getting into where it gets close to some um, private land, but there was a bit of an opening where it kind of gets a little marshy and where there's some um, different plants growing and some sunlight coming through. Did find that basically there's a big old trail that loops all the way around that and there's a couple of scrapes and rubs that kind of incorporate around that area. So it's definitely a, a focal point, but the problem is it gets very, very close. I mean, on one side of it, it's only about 10 yards from the private land border. And then the other problem is, is that because it's so far in, it's really hard to get into. Um, you know, basically you could get into there, except for it'd be hard to get in there without making a ton of noise. It gets pretty thick in there. So your access is really bad, uh, being able to get in and out of there without disturbing everything. So I went back out towards where the, the creek is and found where those trails exit from the creek into the clear cut. And I've 
basically determined that there's two main spots that the vast majority of it looks like the tracks are coming out of. One up closer where that buck first came through when he was coming from the clear cut into the into the woods. And then the second one was basically right on top of where he came out of the second time I saw him. So feeling a little sheepish because that was something that looking at it now seems quite obvious. Back then I didn't put the dots together. But by revisiting the area and exploring it more and understanding it more, I've really got it narrowed down to if I go back to this year, now again, I don't know if that buck's still there because I, I end up <laughs> doing a dummy move and basically brought cameras out, made sure there's batteries in them, made sure the cards were in there and they were cleared, ready to go. Threw them in my backpack, but I forgot to grab the straps for the camera. So went to go set up a camera, grabbed the camera out, no strap to attach it to the tree. So I do have to go back out there to get some cameras. Basically what I'm gonna do is put a camera on each of those trails see what's crossing when they're crossing and hopefully that big old buck is still there and hopefully looking even better this year and the other thing is too is getting making sure that you have stands prepped so again this is more on the if you're hunting on some public excuse me if you're hunting on private ground that you can get your stands ready to go so making sure that your straps double check those make sure they're ready to go if they're worn if they're weathered if there's tears in them make sure you get them replaced you don't want to make the mistake of being up in a stand in the middle of a hunt and having some equipment failure and have that stand fall out from under you. And then also, again, double checking, doing some scouting. I went through in preparation of, you know, getting some stands together on my private ground that I like to hunt. Moved one of my stands from basically a spot that I had before. It's basically a two-man ladder stand had some success there but it's one again one of those things that i didn't understand the property nearly as well it was in a good spot but the, again the hard part is is that it's in an area where it's hard to get in and hard to get out of there without spooking deer so we moved it up closer they're up to another spot up in our top field that we like to hunt basically this has a bit of a valley in this field that a lot of the deer of course are following in that low part of that valley cutting across the field into the next hardwoods on the other side of the property so we moved that stand there hopefully to key in on that you know pattern of movement that we see year after year and time after time hunting there now the next thing i did is also did some additional scouting around that area you know there's significant work being done i'm doing a lot of so i went through and did some additional scouting and one of the main runs that cuts through the creek bottom that crosses basically the entire course of the property there's one there's a few main runs that cut into some of the thicker cover basically kind of pinpointing really mapping it out and highlighting where those main trails are to give myself a really good visual and in doing so in one of the main trails just off to one side a big old thick piece of cover and right there smack in the middle of it was a big old bed some fresh deer fur in it no additional beds around it so i'm assuming this is a, a buck bed based on the size and kind of the isolation of it you know it's not in any typical area where i typically would have found you know bedding before from a lot of the does and there wasn't any, any additional beds within the area that would suggest a doe family group or something along that line so right along that in that cover comes off two main trails map those out 
and off a couple of the trails that kind of loop back around into some mature maples and kind of make their way towards the opening of the top field. I ended up putting a mock scrape. I set a mock scrape several years ago across the property and I've had great success of deer frequently coming to it year round and even starting to notice a trend of mature bucks hitting it a certain time of the year as well. So, and that one again, put basically put it right in the middle of the trail where a deer has to hit it or they have to walk around it. I did the same thing over on this side. This new spot, right in the middle, middle of where two trails are coming together, I put in my scrape. So basically I, I grabbed the, a, a branch from a maple tree that had been um, removed, still had some leaves on it. I bound it to the smaller maple tree that's right next to the trail, leaned it over to create a good licking branch, scraped out some of the dirt, exposing that fresh dirt, stuck a camera on it. So here in the next few weeks, gonna check it, see what type of action I've got been getting. Hopefully it shows some good movement. So I'm planning on putting a tree stand within 15 yards of where that scrape is. So the next thing really, I'm gonna kind of close it out with this one is making sure that your gear is ready to go. You know, if you're like me in years past, you know, once the season was over, I kind of threw everything all together, crammed it in the tote or in a closet and really didn't pull back out until about the week before or if not the day before. So this year I'm making a point to make sure that I have all my gear set and ready to go. So I've already started making sure that my climbing suit is ready to go, straps are ready to go. Again, this year I'm going to do a lot of saddle hunting, so make sure my saddle's all adjusted. I've got good ropes. My backpack that I like to take. Make sure I have my rangefinder ready to go. And then making sure that I got my clothes in line. So make sure I got my base layer ready to go. I found everything double check all my cotton clothes, make sure everything's still serviceable, ready to go. If there's anything that needs to be replaced, now's the time to do it. Another good thing is anything that you might've thought that you might need for this upcoming season, now's a good time to get it to make sure you get it in time. You know, this year, again, I'm going back out to South Dakota. We're gonna be hunting in an area that's gonna be a lot more wide open. We're gonna be hunting some bigger valleys. So this year I ordered up a, uh, basically a shooting stick or a, basically a portable tripod to have something nice and secure to be have used as a shooting rest so i don't know what type of you know situations we're going to encounter but i want to make sure that i have a nice steady platform to build shoot because we're looking at some areas where some of these valleys are you know three four hundred yards across and i want to make sure that if i need to i can have a nice steady hand to be able to reach out and potentially get after something that's much farther than what we typically would run into here in Michigan. And then same thing, making sure that if you need any additional tree stands or anything like that, get those set up. You know, really this is a time to really do an inventory of your gear, make sure it's ready to go and that you're all planned out. Because the last thing you wanna do is, you know, be within days of the season and realize that you're missing something or you need a new piece of equipment and be struggling to try to find it. Along with gear, don't be the person that doesn't get their license ahead of time. I know certain individuals that have, you know, we've basically been set up to go for a hunt and they have to stop off at the store before we even start hunting so they can go pick up their deer license. Don't be that person. 
So in many instances, you can get them over the counter, stop at whatever store that sells hunting licenses, get them in your wallet, make sure they're ready to go in your pack uh, leading into the season. But that's it. Again, we are weeks away from deer season, and I don't know about you, but I'm starting to feel that crisp in the air, and I'm ready to go. But if you still need more time, now you got a few weeks left. Get done what you need to get done. Prepare as much as you can. Because before you know it, the season's going to be here. And it's going to be time to hit the woods and start slinging arrows. So that's it for this episode. Thank you again for listening. Thank you for watching if you were watching along. I hope it was entertaining for you. And as always, get out there, be safe, and have fun.